Thus have we briefly traced the successive steps which God took to prepare the way for the permanent indwelling of the Spirit in the believer. Through the incarnation, obedience, death, and resurrection of Christ, a way was opened by which God could again dwell with man, could resume his abode in the very temple that sin had destroyed, and to show forth the riches and glory of his grace far more illustriously than when this temple stood in its original perfection and grandeur, here was the foundation of every successive temple that grace was about to raise. Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Christ Jesus. On the dignity of his person, finished righteousness, perfect atonement, all-sufficient grace, and inviolable faithfulness, believers as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, 1 Peter 4, 5, for the everlasting indwelling of God, the Holy Ghost. In passing now more specifically to the consideration of the indwelling of the Spirit, we proceed to adduce the testimony he himself has borne to the doctrine. In the following passages, the truth is unfolded. Looking into the Old Testament, shadowy as the period was in which that part of the inspired word was written, we yet find clear intimation of the doctrine before us. Ezekiel 36, verse 27, And I will put my spirit within you. Ezekiel 37:14 And I shall put my spirit in you and ye shall live. In the New Testament the doctrine opens upon our view with increasing power and brightness. Our Lord's own words are familiar in John 14 verses 16 and 17, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. Romans chapter 8, verse 9, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Verse 11, But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, etc. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? 1 Corinthians 6.19 What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you? 2 Corinthians 6 verse 16 And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them. Ephesians 2.22 In whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. We will not multiply verses. It is sufficiently clear that the indwelling of the Spirit is a revealed doctrine of Scripture. We proceed now to develop it. When does the Holy Spirit enter a soul? We reply, at the moment of its regeneration. This is His first gracious act. Previous to this, all is dark, desolate, and dead, as we have in other places fully shown. What pen is adequate to describe the moral desolation, the fearful dilapidation of the soul of man before the Spirit enters, bringing in his train, life, light, and order? One brief sentence of divine truth will more correctly and vividly describe it than the most elaborate human production. Sensual, having not the Spirit. 
But the Spirit enters. He comes in accordance with the eternal purpose, in harmony with the covenant of grace, born on the wings of His own love, and traveling in the greatness of His own strength. What a triumphal entry when He takes possession of the temple, already purchased by the Savior's blood. At His approach, darkness, enmity, pollution, and death retire, and are succeeded by light, love, holiness, and life. It is true that he meets with fierce opposition from within, for the strong man armed keepeth his palace, and his goods are at peace. But a stronger than he comes, and puts to flight all opposition, bends the will, subdues the enmity, dissolves the heart, and implants the sweet response, Come in, thou blessed of the Lord. Why standest thou without? Enter and take full possession for thyself. Long have I closed my heart against thee, too long have I resisted all thine importunities, but now thou hast conquered and prevailed. Come in, blessed spirit, and seal me for thine own. O blissful moment when the spirit enters, convincing of sin, breaking the heart with godly sorrow, laying the soul low in the dust in the spirit of self-abasement and self-condemnation before God, then leading it to the atoning blood of Jesus and speaking pardon and peace to the conscience. The Spirit dwells in the believer as a manifestation of the divine glory. The temple that Solomon built was one of great magnificence and splendor, but it was an earthly glory, and although he who dwelleth not in temples made with hands condescended to reveal himself in it, Yet it possessed no glory in comparison with the glory that was to exist in the new spiritual temple which the Holy Ghost was to erect and inhabit. Speaking of the legal dispensation with which the temple prepared by David and built by Solomon was designed to harmonize, the apostle argues that it possessed no glory in comparison with the gospel economy. And why? Because there was less of the Spirit in the former than in the present dispensation. It was the enlarged manifestation of the Spirit, especially His indwelling of the saints, which constituted the peculiar and far-surpassing glory of the new economy. How shall not, says he, the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect, by reason of the glory that excelleth. The superior glory of the new dispensation, then, is that it is more spiritual. There is a more enlarged and rich effusion of the quickening, sanctifying, and sealing influences of the Holy Spirit. There is more of Christ, more of the holy liberty of adoption, a more simple, spiritual, and childlike approach to God. But especially does the indwelling of the Spirit in the saints form a distinguished feature of the new economy. Here is an especial manifestation of the divine glory, that the Spirit could, on the broad basis of Emmanuel's finished atoning work, call a poor sinner by grace, regenerate, sanctify, then take possession of him forever, dwell in him, witness in him, work in him, and make him meet for the inheritance of the saints in light, this is a marvelous display of the divine glory. The electing love, infinite wisdom, and omnipotent power of God are glorified. 
the atoning work, all-sufficient grace and unspeakable compassion of Jesus are glorified, the irresistible power, infinite patience, and efficacious work of the Spirit are glorified in the soul that becomes an habitation of God through the Spirit. We even dare assert that the conversion of a soul, the sustaining of the work wrought in that soul, the keeping of the believer through a long life of holy, upright, and close walk with God, and the bringing of him safe to eternal happiness, are greater displays of the mighty power of God, and more glorify him than the creation of ten thousand worlds like ours. The Spirit dwells in the believer as the ever-living Spirit of all grace and comfort. All that is really holy and gracious in a child of God is found in the work of the indwelling Spirit. All the holy breathings and desires of the soul, all the longings for God and for conformity to His will and image, all that is lovely and like Jesus in the saint are the result of this gracious act of the eternal spirit. The Lord Jesus himself would direct us to this truth in John 4, chapter 4, verse 14. Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. That this well of water is the indwelling of the Spirit seems clear from the tenth verse of John 4. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, etc., that gift of God was the Holy Ghost, alluded to again still more emphatically in chapter 7, verses 38 and 39. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believed on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Here is a gracious truth. The Spirit in every believer is a deep and living well of all spiritual blessings. He dwells in the soul not like a stagnant pool, but like an ever-living fountain that plays at all seasons of the year, in heat and cold and in all external circumstances of weather, whether foul or fair, wet or dry, nature could not produce that which the indwelling Spirit accomplishes in the saints of God, the hungering and the thirsting for righteousness, the rising of the heart in filial love to God, the sweet submission to His sovereign will, the longing for more knowledge of Christ, the constant struggling with the law of sin within, the mourning over the indwelling principle of sin, all this is above and far beyond mere nature. It is the fruit, the precious fruit of the indwelling Spirit. It may be, reader, that your heart is often anxious to know in what way you may distinguish between nature and grace, how you may clearly discern between that which is legal and that which is spiritual, between that which is the work of man and that which is the work of God. In this way you may trace the vast difference, that which at first came from God returns to God again. It rises to the source whence it descended. Divine grace in a sinner's heart is a springing well, a well of water springing up into eternal life. Did nature ever teach a soul the plague of its own heart? Never. Did nature ever lay the soul in the dust before God, mourning and weeping over sin? Never. 
Did nature ever inspire the soul with pantings for God and thirstings for holiness? Never. And did it ever endear the throne of grace and make precious to the soul the atoning blood, the justifying righteousness of Jesus? Never. Never. All this as much transcends the power of nature as the creation of a world. Is this your real state, reader? Oh, look up. Flesh and blood did not reveal it to you, but the eternal God has revealed it, and that by the indwelling of His own blessed Spirit in your heart. We must not overlook His indwelling as a Spirit of holiness. This is His great and crowning work in a believer. It is in vain that we look for Him as a witness or as a Spirit of comfort if we slight the Spirit of God as a sanctifier. Although we have assigned a distinct chapter to the subject of the sanctification of the Spirit, we would yet briefly allude to it in connection with His indwelling of the saints. The work of holiness forms a great and glorious part of His operation as the indweller of His people. He has come to restore not only order, but purity to the temple. He has come to restore the reign of holiness, to set up the law of God in the soul, to unfold its precepts and to write them upon the heart, and shedding abroad the love of Christ under its gentle but powerful constraint to lead the believer to run the way of God's commandments. He is preeminently a spirit of holiness in the believer, for a full unfolding of the manner in which the Spirit carries forward the work of holiness in the soul, the reader is referred to the chapter on that subject. Nor must it be forgotten that he dwells in the believer as an abiding spirit. This is a permanent indwelling. Our dear Lord laid a special stress upon this feature when on the eve of leaving his disciples to return to his throne, he promised them another comforter whose spiritual presence should more than make up for the loss of his bodily presence, and lest there should be any painful apprehensions as to the time of his indwelling with them, he assures them that the Spirit should abide with them forever. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Do not overlook this truth. Let no spiritual darkness, no workings of unbelief, no sense of indwelling sin rob you of the comfort and consolation which a believing view of it will impart. There may be periods when you are not sensible of the indwelling of the Spirit. Clouds and darkness may be around this doctrine. There may be severe trials, gloomy providences, foreboding fears, the way rough and intricate, the sky dark and wintry, faith small, unbelief powerful, and your soul from its low depths led to exclaim, all these things are against me. Will the Lord cast off forever, and will he be favorable no more? Is his mercy clean gone forever? Doth his promise fail forevermore? Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath he in anger shut up his tender mercies? Oh, do not forget that even then, dejected saint of God, then when all is dark within and all is desolate without, then the Holy Spirit, the sanctifier and the comforter and the glorifier of Jesus, dwells in you and shall be with you forever. 
True, you may be assailed by powerful corruptions, the consolations of God few and small with you, and your prayer like David's, cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Yet he, the blessed indweller, is there, and his still, small, and soothing voice shall soon be heard amid the roaring of the tempest, hushing it to a peaceful calm. He shall abide with you forever. No wanderings, no neglect, no unkindness, no unworthiness, no unfaithfulness shall ever force him from your bosom. He may withdraw his sensible presence. He may withhold his comforting influence. He may be so grieved by your careless walk as to suspend for a while his witnessing and sanctifying power, permitting indwelling corruptions for a moment to triumph. But he restoreth my soul. He brings it back again. He breaks the heart, binds it up, wounds, then heals it fills it with godly grief, then tunes it with thanksgiving and the voice of melody. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. He restoreth my soul. I can present in this chapter a mere outline of the remaining operations of the Spirit as the indweller of the saints. I regret this the less because some of those parts of his work are more fully discussed in the chapters especially assigned to them in this book. As a spirit of adoption, he dwells in the believer. Galatians 4, verse 6, And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. As a witness he is there, Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 16, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. As an earnest and pledge of future glory, the Spirit is there. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, etc. As a teacher, he is there. John 14, 26. The Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things. He shall guide you into all truth. As a remembrancer, he is there. Verse 26, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance. As a glorifier of Jesus, he is there. John 16:14. he shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. All these gracious operations worketh that one and self-same spirit indwelling the hearts of all believers. In reviewing this subject, the following important reflections suggest themselves to us. How amazing the grace of God that makes the heart of a poor sinner his dwelling place. Oh, what grace is this! How it prostrates all high thoughts of self. How it brings down the lofty look and lays the soul where it should ever lie, low in a low place. Will God in very deed dwell with man? I will dwell in them, says God, and will walk in them. Let us not forget that it is the humble, broken heart that forms the true temple of the Holy Ghost. He only dwells here, and here he does dwell. It may be a temple despised by man, but God prepares and chooses it for his abode. The proud and haughty spirit of self-righteous man may overlook it as valueless, the tear that falls in silence, the sigh that is breathed in secret, 
the heart that mourns over sin may be thought little of by the passerby, but with God it is of great price. He has a bottle for that tear, a record for that sigh, and that mourning is music in his ear. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is Holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble, and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Isaiah 57:15. Perhaps your cry is, Come, blessed and eternal Spirit, into my heart. Make it a temple now and forever for thine abode. Worthless though the offering be, yet it is all I have to present to thee. Enter with all thy humbling, sanctifying, sealing, and comforting influences, and take full possession for thyself. O oh, blessed cry, O oh, sweet fruit of that loving, faithful spirit who already has entered, unknown and unsuspected it may be, by you, and has planted there this desire, the sure and certain pledge of future glory. Be assured, precious soul, that this cry, feeble as it is of yours, is an evidence of the indwelling of the spirit. It is the first gentle springing up of the living fountain within you, and it shall continue to spring up even unto eternal life. Cherish it as you would your greatest blessing. Pray that it may be increased and strengthened more and more, and closely watch against the slightest thing which would tend to enfeeble it. How holy should the temple of the Spirit be, reader, are you a temple of the Holy Ghost, God's temple? Then dedicate yourself unreservedly to God. You are not your own, your body, your spirit, your family. Substance, time, talents, influence, all, all belong to God. He dwells in you, walks in you rules in you, and calls you his dwelling place, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you? Then what a separation should there be between you and the world that lieth in wickedness? How should you guard against every unnecessary entanglement with it? How cautious and prayerful, lest by contracting an unholy alliance with it in any form or degree, you should defile the temple of God, which temple you are. Oh, what heavenly wisdom, holy circumspection, and ceaseless prayer do you need, that you may walk with unspotted garments, that no rival should enter your heart, that no lofty views of self, no spirit of worldly conformity, no temporizing policy, no known sin, no creature idolatry should enter there, that like the heavenly temple nothing that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination, should be cherished or entertained in the abode and in the presence of the Holy Ghost. For what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Reader, whose temple are you? Solemn question. Does God or Satan dwell in you? Christ or Belial? Light or darkness? Either the one or the other has, at 
this moment possession of you. You cannot serve two contrary masters. You cannot entertain two opposite guests. You are living either for God or for Satan. You are traveling either to heaven or to hell. Which? On your bended knees before God, decide. And may the Lord the Spirit renew you by His grace, and if renewed, make you a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the Master's use, and prepared unto every good work. Chapter 5. The Sanctification of the Spirit. The Necessity and the Nature of True Holiness. Our text, 2 Thessalonians 2.13 through sanctification of the Spirit. We have already briefly intimated that one most important feature in the work of the indwelling Spirit is the sanctification of the believer. What was merely glanced at in the preceding chapter will now, by the assistance of that same teacher who has promised to guide into all spiritual truth, be more fully unfolded. While yet upon the threshold of our subject, let it be promised that there is an order as well as a harmony in the operations of the Spirit, which it is highly important should be observed. An ignorance or an oversight of this has led to great and fatal perversions of the gospel, especially that part which relates to the doctrine now under discussion, the doctrine of the sanctification of the Spirit. All the self-righteousness of the Pharisee, all the self-devotion of the deluded disciple of the papal superstition have their origin here. Now the order of the Spirit is this, regeneration of the heart first, then its sanctification. Reverse this, and we derange every part of his work, and, as far as our individual benefit extends, render it entirely useless. Sanctification is not the first and immediate duty of an unrenewed person. Indeed, it is utterly impossible that it should be so. Sanctification has its commencement and its daily growth in a principle of life implanted in the soul by the eternal spirit. And to look for holiness in an individual still dead in sins is to look for fruit where no seed was sown, for the actings of life where no vital principle exists. It is to expect, in the language of our Lord, to gather grapes from thorns and figs from thistles. The first and imperative duty of an unrenewed man is to prostrate himself in deep abasement and true repentance before God. The lofty look must be brought low, and the rebellious will must be humbled. In the posture of one overwhelmed with a sense of guilt, he must look by faith to a crucified Savior and draw from Him life, pardon, acceptance. It is most solemnly true that without holiness no man shall see the Lord. Yet all attempts toward the attainment of holiness before repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ will but disappoint the soul that looks for it. This work of renewal done, 
Sanctification is a comparatively easy and a delightful task. Motives and exhortations to a life of holiness now find a ready response in the heart, already the temple of the Holy Spirit. The incorruptible seed sown there germinates into the plant and blossoms and ripens into the fruits of holiness. The well of living water created there springs up and pours forth its stream of life and purity, adorning and fertilizing the garden of the Lord. Let us then be careful not to disturb the arrangement and reverse the order of the Blessed Spirit in His work. From lack of such care, great errors have arisen, and souls have gone into eternity fearfully and fatally deceived." Especially cautious should they be in this matter who are appointed to the office of spiritual instruction, to whose care immortal souls are entrusted, lest in a matter involving interests so precious and so lasting, anyone listening to their teaching should pass into eternity ignorant of the one and true method of salvation. Let the reader prayerfully follow us, while we endeavor to unfold the necessity of sanctification in the believer, its gospel nature, and the means employed by the Spirit in its production. There exists an absolute solemn necessity for sanctification in a child of God. To remind the reader of this may at first sight appear a needless work, so self-evident and so immediate an effect of regeneration by the Spirit does it seem, and yet the advanced believer, much more the sincere inquirer after a more perfect knowledge of the will of God, needs to be perpetually reminded of the solemn necessity for his own happiness and his Father's glory of a daily growth in all holiness. And as the believer is, after regeneration, an active agent in the furtherance of this great work, and as there is a perpetual proneness through the many infirmities of the flesh to settle down in a state of ease and sloth in it, the importance of being reminded of the necessity of sanctification will immediately appear. The first ground on which this necessity rests is the holiness of God. The nature of the God whose temple he is pleads for the sanctification of the believer. We have to do with a holy God who, from the very necessity and purity of his being, can have no fellowship with sin. He must hate, he must abhor sin. A stronger plea for the sanctification of the child of God can nowhere be found. Let us for a moment trace this argument as it runs like a golden thread through every part of God's Word. We see its commencement in the Old Testament, Leviticus 11, 44 and 45. For I am the Lord your God. Ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and ye shall be holy, for I am holy. I am the Lord that bringeth you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Ye shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Leviticus 19.2 Speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, and say unto them, Ye shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And that these commandments and this standard may not seem to belong exclusively to the Old Testament saints, the Apostle Peter embodies them as of equal force and solemnity in his writings to the saints in the New Testament. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16 But as he which hath called you is holy... So be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. 
If this motive to sanctification came clothed with such solemnity and power, and was so felt by the Jewish church, what should be its authority and influence with the church as it now exists? The increased power and solemnity of this motive is drawn from the more resplendent exhibition of God's holiness in the cross of Christ. The saints of the Old Testament were not favored with such a development of the divine purity as an argument to sanctification, but we possess it so that if we continue in sin after we have believed, we are without excuse, and God is clear when he judgeth. The cross is God's grand demonstration of his holiness. Here has he, as it were, unveiled his great perfections, and shown what a sin-hating, holiness-loving God he is. What? Could he not pass by his dear son? Did he give him up to the shame and spitting? Why did he not withhold his darling from the power of the dog? Psalm 22. Did justice sheath its sword in the heart of Jesus? Did it smite the shepherd? And why all this? The answer comes from Calvary. I, the Lord, am a holy God. And then follows the precept. Oh, how touching. Be ye holy, for I am holy. See how the justice of God, and what is the justice of God but His holiness in exercise, revealed itself as a consuming fire on Calvary? Our dear Lord was a whole burnt offering for His people, and the fire that descended and consumed the sacrifice was the holiness of God in active and fearful exercise. Here then springs the solemn necessity for sanctification in the believer. The God he loves is holy, his Father is holy, and he has written out that holiness in awful letters in the cross of his well-beloved Son, Be ye holy, for I am holy. We must study God in Christ. There we see his holiness, justice, wisdom, grace, truth, love, and mercy, all unfolded in their richest glory and most benevolent exercise. The necessity for sanctification also springs from the work of Christ. The Lord Jesus became incarnate and died as much for the sanctification as for the pardon and justification of his church, as much for her deliverance from the indwelling power of sin as from the condemnatory power of sin. His work would have been but partial and incomplete if no provision had been made for the holiness of the believer, but he came not only to blot out sin, but to rend asunder its chain, not only to remove its curse, but to break its scepter. The believer in Jesus may be but imperfectly aware how closely associated his sanctification is with the obedience and death of Christ. Indeed, the very death of Christ for sin out of him is the death of sin in him. No inroads are made upon the domination and dominion of indwelling sin. No conquests obtained, no flesh crucified, no easy besetting sin laid aside, save only as the believer hangs daily upon his cross. Observe how the Holy Ghost connects the two, the death of Christ and the holiness of the believer, thus in John 17:19, And for their sakes says Jesus, I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. As their high priest to atone and purify, Jesus set himself apart as a holy sacrifice to the Lord God for the church's sake. 
For their sakes I sanctify myself, or set myself apart. Oh, what a motive to holiness is this, saint of God! Can you resist it? Yet again, the connection is unfolded in Titus chapter 2, verse 14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Ephesians 5, 25 and 26, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Thus clearly does the Holy Spirit unfold the close and beautiful relationship between the death of Christ and the death of sin. The covenant of grace enforces the sanctification of the believer. The covenant of grace enforces the sanctification of the believer. It is the eternal and immutable purpose of God, observes Dr. John Owen, that all who are his in a peculiar manner, all whom he designs to bring unto blessedness in the everlasting enjoyment of himself, shall, antecedently thereunto, be made holy." Unquote. For the security and attainment of this, all provision has been made in the everlasting covenant of grace. The very election of the believer to eternal life provides for and secures his holiness. There could not possibly be any holiness without election, because election provides the means of its attainment. Thus clearly does the Spirit of Truth unfold it in 2 Thessalonians 2.13. We are bound to give thanks all way to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Again, Ephesians 1.4, According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Let this clearly be understood. On the ground of no foreseen holiness in the creature did God thus purpose to save him, but seeing the indispensable necessity of sanctification in order to eternal glory, the impossibility of the one without the other, God chose us in Christ that we should be holy. Let not the Christian reader turn away from or treat lightly this precious, revealed truth of God's Word. An election of a people unto holiness here and glory hereafter. The prejudice of education, early modes of thought, a preconceived system, and most of all, the neglect of a close and prayerful study of God's Word for yourself may lead you to the rejection of this doctrine. But... He who first objects to it and then renounces it without a thorough and prayerful sifting of its scriptural claims to belief stands on solemn ground, and his attitude may have fearful consequences. What God has revealed, that call not thou common. What he has commanded, do not turn from, lest you be found to have turned from God himself. Why it has pleased the Lord to choose a people in this way? It is not our province to inquire, nor, we believe, would it be for our happiness to know. We do not attempt to explain the doctrine, much less to account for it. We simply, and we trust, scripturally state it, leaving God to vindicate and God to bless it. 
He is the best defender and apologist of his own sacred word. Secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret thing in the doctrine of election is why God has done it. The thing which is revealed is that he has done it. Let us not then seek to be wise above what is written, though it is our duty, as an acute writer has remarked, to be wise up to what is written, leaving the more perfect knowledge of the things that are now seen as through a glass darkly to that period of perfect illumination when we shall know even as we are known. But thus much we know that it is the eternal purpose of God the eternal purpose of God revealed and provided for in the covenant of grace that all who are chosen, called, and justified shall, with a view to their being glorified, be partakers of His holiness. Heaven is a holy place. Its inhabitants are a holy people. And He whose glory fills the temple is a holy God. Behold, then, the provision God has made for the sanctification of the believer in the everlasting covenant of grace. The foundation is laid in the death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It commences in the effectual calling of the Spirit, and by all the precious assurances of grace, wisdom, and strength provided in the covenant, sanctification is carried forward to a glorious completion. We would only specify, as one more consideration, pleading for the sanctification of the believer, his own personal happiness. Holiness is necessary to the comfort of the believer, as it is an essential element of his Christian character. Sanctification is a part of the new creation. Although not the first step the soul takes into the new world of holiness, it yet immediately follows. Regeneration, the new birth, is the commencement of the reign of holiness, or, to change the figure, the planting of the seed, which time and the Lord's covenant dealings cause to take deep root and to put forth its lovely and fragrant flower. In proportion as the sanctification of a believer advances, his real happiness advances with it. Holiness brings its own peculiar and high enjoyment. Holiness is from heaven and conveys into the heart the happiness of heaven, so that he who is most holy has most of the material of heaven in his soul. Oh, how loudly does the happiness of a child of God plead for his holiness! As his soul approximates to the likeness of God, his circumstances, trying as they may be, cannot remove the fine edge of his inward and concealed enjoyments. Indeed, sanctified by the indwelling spirit, trials only heighten those enjoyments and are found the most effective helps to the maturing of holiness in his soul. These are some of the grounds on which the necessity of sanctification is enforced in the Holy Bible. It will now be proper to unfold its gospel nature. What is true sanctification? The question is vastly more important than would at first sight appear. Unscriptural views of sanctification have been found to exist not only among the unregenerate, but even in the Church of Christ. Yet, every dear child of God who honestly desires to follow the Lord fully and to live as a temple of the Holy Ghost 
deeply feels the necessity of the Spirit's teaching in a matter so personal and so momentous as this, how much do we who now write and they who read need, while contemplating this subject, the anointing of the Holy One and the eye that looks at the blood that cleanses from all sin? Sanctification has been defined as, quote, the work of the Holy Spirit, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God, and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Briefly and emphatically, it is a progressive conformity of the whole man to the divine nature. Under the Levitical dispensation, the term sanctified had a peculiar meaning. Persons and things were said to be sanctified, which were separated, set apart, and offered to God. Thus, the furniture of the temple was pronounced holy or sanctified. The ark, the altar, all the utensils of the temple and the vestments of the priest were regarded as sanctified because set apart and dedicated to God. For the same reason... Persons were said to be sanctified who were solemnly consecrated to the service. The dispensation of ritual having passed away, the word, by an easy and natural accommodation, has assumed a more comprehensive and evangelical meaning, and the word sanctification is now employed to set forth the advance of the believer in a conformity of heart to the will and image of God. In explaining the nature of sanctification, we would first of all establish from the Scripture the spirituality of the divine law. There is a sense, as we have elsewhere shown, in which the believer is dead to the law. His union to Christ has delivered him from the law as a covenant of works. Ye are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him that is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Romans chapter 6. Again, now we are delivered from that law, that being dead dead, being dead to that, wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter, Romans chapter 7. This, then, is the deadness to which the apostle refers. It is a release from the law as a ground of acceptance. The believer is accepted in the beloved, pardoned, justified, and sanctified in Christ. He is married to Christ, is one with Christ. As such, he is delivered from the law under whose condemnation he once rested. Being dead to that wherein he was held, it can no longer assert its claims or exact obedience as the condition of life. The law can no longer threaten or condemn. Shut up in the faith of Jesus and receiving pardon and justification through him, the believer is beyond the power of the law as a covenant of life and is screened from its vengeance as a source of condemnation. No single truth has the Holy Ghost more clearly written out than this. He has shown, too, that it forms the basis of sanctification in the justified believer. His release from a covenant of works and his translation into the covenant of grace, his deliverance from the law and his union to Christ form the ground of all holy liberty filial obedience, and spiritual fruitfulness. They that are under the law are under the curse, but there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Therefore the believer in Christ is not under the law. 
but we come to the sense in which they that are in Christ Jesus have yet to do with the law. Released from it as a covenant of life, the law yet remains obligatory as a rule of obedience to Christ. The law yet remains obligatory as a rule of obedience to Christ. If we suppose that the law has lost all authority and use to be entirely abrogated, we must suppose that the relation of God to his creatures as their moral governor has also ceased, that having laid aside all rule of obedience, he has with it abdicated the throne of the universe, and that man has ceased to be the subject of a moral government. But far from this, the law of God remains in all its dignity, purity, and force. The believer in Christ is released from the law as a ground of acceptance, but not as a standard of holiness. Is it true that Christ is the standard and pattern of a believer's holiness? Undoubtedly. Then we argue that the moral law was the standard of Christ's holiness. Therefore, the law must necessarily be the standard of the believer's holiness. The whole life of Jesus was a conformity to the purity of the divine law, which was his standard of holiness and his pattern of obedience. Therefore, in following the example of Christ, we are being conformed to the purity of the law in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Sanctification, then, is a growing conformity to the spirituality of the divine law, the sincere believer acknowledges that the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and just, and good. He knows that the law is spiritual. He therefore delights in the law of God after the inward man. Does his faith in Jesus make void the law? God forbid. Instead, his faith establishes the law, reflects its spirituality, maintains its purity, vindicates its holiness, and glorifies its divine author. The closer, then, the resemblance of the believer to the spirituality of the law of God in his life, his temper and habit of his mind, his principles, his daily walk in the world and out of the world among the saints or as surrounded by the ungodly, the more thoroughly is the work of sanctification advancing in his soul. In all this, there is a more simple surrender of the will to God. The Holy Robert Layton has remarked that to say from the heart, Thy will be done, constitutes the very essence of sanctification. There is much truth in this, more than perhaps strikes the mind at the first view. Thy will be done, as the very essence of sanctification. Before conversion, the will, the governing principle of your soul, is the seat of all opposition to God. It rises against God, His government, His law, His providence, His grace, His Son. To all that appertains to God, the unrenewed will of man is hostile. Here lies the depth of man's unholiness. The will is against God, and so long as it refuses to obey God, the creature must remain unholy. Now it needs no lengthy argument to show that when the will, as renewed by the Holy Ghost, is made to submit to God... The holiness of the believer must be in proportion to the degree of its submission. 
There could not be perfect holiness in heaven were there the slightest preponderance of the will of the creature towards itself. The angels and the spirits of just men made perfect are supremely holy because their wills are supremely swallowed up in the will of God. Thy will be done on earth even as it is in heaven. The will of God is supremely obeyed in heaven, and in this consists the holiness and the felicity of its glorious inhabitants. Now, in exact proportion as God's will is done on earth by the believer, the believer drinks from the pure fountain of holiness, and as he is enabled by the grace of Christ in all things to look up to God with filial love and to say, Not my will, O my Father, but thine be done, he attains the very essence of sanctification. Let us trace out this subject. It is God's revealed will that his child should be holy. This is the will of God, even your sanctification. When the will of the believer rises and blends itself with God's will here, and in the spirit of sonship responds, Lord, is it thy will that I should be holy? Then make me so in body, in soul, and in spirit. Subdue all my corruptions, break the power of my lusts, bring every thought, affection, word, and look into sweet obedience to thyself. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. How truly does the work of sanctification advance in the soul. It is the revealed will of God that his child should maintain a walk in all things pleasing to him that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. When the believer's will fully acquiesces in this, and the heart is drawn out in earnest and agonizing prayer for an upright walk, worthy of his high calling and of the Lord by whom he is called, for more fruitfulness in every good work, and for an increase of faith, increase of love, increase of the knowledge of God, who will not say that such a soul is rapidly growing in sanctification? It is the revealed will of God that the believer should walk as an obedient child. Oh, that thou hadst hearkened to my commandments, then had thy peace been as a river, and thy righteousness as the waves of the sea. And when these are the responsive breathings of his soul, I love thy commandments above gold, yea, above fine gold. Therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. I will run the way of thy commandments when thou shalt enlarge my heart. Such a soul is maturing in holiness and is becoming fitted for the inheritance of the saints in light. It is the revealed will of God that his child should meekly and silently bow to his chastening hand. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. And when the tried and afflicted believer hears the rod, and who hath appointed it, and with a humble and filial acquiescence justifies the wisdom and the love and even the tenderness that sent that rod, Surely such a soul is a rich partaker of God's holiness. 
In all these particulars there is a surrender of the will to God, and consequently an approximation to the holiness of God's nature. The point we're now considering is one of great importance. It involves as much your holy and happy walk as it does the glory of God. We put the simple questions, Can there be any advance of sanctification in your soul when your will is running counter to the divine will? And can you walk happily when there is a constant opposition in your mind to all the dealings of your God and Father? Oh, no. Holiness and happiness are closely allied, and both are the offspring of a humble, filial, and complete surrender of the will in all things to God. Such an attainment in holiness is not soon or easily gained. Far from it, in many it is the work of years, in all of painful discipline. It is not on the high mount of joy, but in the low valley of humiliation that this precious and holy surrender is learned. It is not in the summer day when all things smile and wear a sunny aspect. Then it were easy to say, Thy will be done. But when a cloudy and a wintry sky looks down upon you, when the chill blast of adversity blows, when health fails, when friends die, when wealth departs, when the heart's fondest endearments are yielded, when the Isaac is called for, when the world turns its back, when all is gone and you are like a tree of the desert over which the tempest has swept, stripping it of every branch, when you are brought so low that it would seem to you that you could not be any lower, then to look up with filial love and exclaim, My Father, Thy will be done. Oh, this is holiness. This is happiness indeed. It may be that God, your God and Father, is dealing in this way with you now. Has He taken from you health? Has He asked for the surrender of your Isaac? Have riches taken to themselves wings? Does the world frown at you? Ah, little do you realize how God is now about to unfold to you the depths of His love and to cause your will sweetly and filially and entirely to flow into His. Let me repeat the observation. A higher degree of sanctification there cannot be than a will entirely swallowed up in God's. Earnestly pray for it. Diligently seek it. Be jealous of the slightest opposition of your mind. Watch against the least rebellion of the will. Wrestle for an entire surrender to be where and to be what your covenant God and Father would have you. And so shall you be made a partaker of His holiness. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts is on the web at www.sw.org.
swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.